Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Think about it. Deep conversations with Uli Bear on big ideas and great books. So I'm sitting here with John Waters. Uh, clinical associate professor at New York University, where we actually have a program in Irish studies, at least in Ireland House. Welcome, John, to think about it. And you're, one of the areas of expertise is Irish literature, culture, history. So we're here today to talk about James Joyce's uh, collection of short stories, Dubliners. First of all, thank you for being on the show. My, my pleasure. Looking forward to it very much, yeah. And you're the first guest after about two years to be back in person. Yeah, that feels very good, I must say. Yeah, it's good to see you in person and live and not be through screens. So, exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's, I was thinking about it walking over here. Dubliners is such a, a collection of such visceral stories. Yes. Very palpable. You get a real sense of... Um, Dublin, and maybe you can start us out a little bit by talking a little bit what, where the stories are situated, what Dublin is. I have to confess, I've only been to Dublin once. Yes. Um, I recorded a Beckett episode in Dublin, actually, at Trinity College. I, I'd heard of it, yeah. Which yeah. was a lot of fun. And But it's today a very beautiful, curated, gorgeous city. Yes. Lots of international tourists. Um, parts yeah. of it are just sort of the most picturesque things, but I don't think it was that. No, no, indeed, yeah, it's utterly transformed from even the city that I lived in in the in the mid nineteen eighties when I first went to school in uh, in Dublin, um, and certainly from the the city that James Joyce lived in, which was notable for having the worst uh, slums in all of Western Europe. Um, oh. Dublin was had endemic tuberculosis. It had fallen really remarkably. Um, from the heights of the late 18th century, when it was really the second city of the British Empire, uh, after the Act of Union removed the Irish Parliament to Westminster and abolished the Irish Parliament, the political class and the um, the resident landlord class largely moved out of the city, and the grand squares and houses of Georgian Dublin over time became tenements, especially on the north side of the city. Um, and by the time that James Joyce was a young man, Dublin really had a, an entrenched uh, problem of, of dilapidated housing and over, overcrowding. That affected Joyce himself personally in, a, in an interesting way that I think really filters into these stories and the, 
the observations that uh, he has on urban life, primarily in the sense that the Joyce family was a downwardly mobile family themselves, right? So James Joyce's father, uh, John Stanislaus Joyce, was um, someone who never settled into a profession. He inherited some land, uh, had pretensions of grandeur, had been to university in Cork, but was a drinker and a talker, a political maneuverer, um, and also a Catholic who had 11 children in uh, 12 years. And he, James Joyce was the oldest, and so Joyce grew up when the family were, was wealthy. That enabled the father to send him to Clongo's Wood School, which was the premier boarding school for Catholic young men. It was a Jesuit institution, and, and Joyce was a remarkably talented, gifted, brilliant, brilliant human being. Um, but over time, uh, Joyce was able to go to Clongo's for several years, but then the family finances utterly cratered. And that began, uh, first Joyce was removed from there and, and placed in, in local schools in Dublin, which were significantly less august than Clongo's. But more importantly, the family started to move. They lost their house in, um, in South Dublin, the very salubrious, beautiful, leafy part of the city, and began moving in a series, and really in a big circular series around the city up to the north side. And that's where Joyce became really intimate with poverty. And I think that that fall, that, that, that double lens really informs yeah. his experience of the city in a lot of ways. And the idea that as a teenager, he grew up with a memory of being secure and wealthy, but witnessing his family's disintegration and poverty. And then thinking about that I, as a young man, he could see the, the larger social forces of decay to which his family was then be kind of becoming subject. So I think all of his observations about the differences between the north and the south side of the city, concentrated poverty on the north, uh, cosseted, culturally um, uh, clotted and, and, and uh, sclerotic politics and culture of the south side right. of the city, all of that really filters into the stories as we can get into. when we. And how does he see himself once the family is kind of fallen into... Poverty said the family moved so many times. He's the oldest of 10 surviving yeah, kids. Yeah, right? that's right. I'm, so uh, you touch on such an interesting question about Joyce's self-observation because what, as I understand, the, the power of the writing comes from an utterly astonishing ability of withdrawal and of uh, an observational clinical detachment and uh, this manifests itself in a lot of different ways in Joyce's work, but specifically with, with the, the sense that um, psychologically and emotionally the ability to remove himself and yet to be observant and yet to look at, at life as it was actually lived and to try to think about the different fantasies. I think his father was a bit of a fantasist and, and someone who, who created narratives of his past and of his present and victim, a victim uh, structure for thinking about how his life had right. gone. And I think James Joyce was able ultimately to question sort of everything about the social structure of Irish life, but I think by extension, the bourgeois constructions of the Victorian era in Europe more generally, um, and to really to cultivate that sense of, of a clinical detachment And it includes this detachment in, it includes other people's psychology or interior lives. So it's, it's this 
incredibly detailed, precise observation of things and details and what people eat and how much they pay and where they sit and what what their clothes are made of and what the banister of the stairs are like, but then also the psychology, which is not his knowledge. So you think there's, it's really interesting. There's a kind of yes. clinical detachment that he can see himself probably also in a way, but he can see other people almost as if he sees them doing something and then he sees whatever we call the motivation or the drives or desires or fears behind that. I, I think part of what you're referring to here has to do with the fact that Joyce wrote most of his work. The vast majority of his work was written after he left Ireland. Yeah. And many of the questions about how he thought of how other people lived in Ireland yeah. were motivated by the question of what would he have become had he stayed. So tell us when he leaves and what he... So he's, he's a young man in Dublin and... and First of all, why wouldn't he stay? And you said yeah. you gave, gave us a pretty good picture of why yeah. people probably didn't feel there's a lot of a lot of prospect there. But he so, leaves. Uh, yeah, he he was a scholarship student, right? So he's a, he's a brilliant student. He went to the National University of Ireland at, at University College Dublin, um, which would had been founded by Cardinal Newman in eighteen uh, early eighteen fifties and established. Uh, for the education of the Catholic um, middle classes, primarily, um, in, in distinction to the ancient and established university, Trinity College Dublin, which was Protestant, and the sectarian origins of, of university culture factor to a certain extent in Joyce's understanding of how Irish intellectual life was, was somewhat of a closed structure mm -hmm. to him. At the same time that he was already quite notorious as a teenager for the, the flashing brilliance of his mind, for having an eidetic memory, right, so that anything he read he could recite and, and yeah. could, uh, could recall, but also his gift for languages and for mimicry, right? So he's a great mimic and, a, and had the ability to pick up um, other languages quite quickly. There's, there's a famous uh, story. I always teach Joyce's letter to Ibsen whenever I teach my, the Joyce Colloquium. Um, and what happened was when Joyce was an undergrad at University College Dublin, after going to Belvedere College, another Jesuit school, as a scholarship boy, right. um, he was studying modern languages. So modern languages was basically the, ante, the, the sort of philological antecedent of comparative literature, as we would understand it in the, in the 20th century. Um, French, Italian, German, primarily a major directed toward women, right? So the majority of people studying oh, really? that course out over time became dominated by, by women. So it was an arts degree, and it, it would lead to work as a teacher primarily. Joyce, as an undergrad, had become electrified by Ibsen's drama. And Ireland, of course, was a, was a, a drama-mad country and a... And a it's a very interesting question about the long history of drama in Ireland because there is no Gaelic cultural form of drama. Hmm. And yet when it emerged in the 17th century in English through the, in the Pale in Dublin, through the influence of, of the Anglo-Irish uh, sort of community, it became immediately attractive <laughs> and, and um, uh, Irish people took to acting and took to drama and the stage, and, and especially in the 18th and the 19th century, the London stage is dominated by Irish actors. Right. So theater 
as a form of civic life in Dublin, in the, as particularly when Joyce is growing up in the 1890s, is an yeah. extraordinary, lively um, place. Joyce viewed the National Theatre of Ireland, W.B. Yeats's um, early formation of the Abbey Theatre, as a kind of bourgeois talking shop with, um, with very little critical engagement with central political and cultural issues. Whereas he saw Ibsen shining a light and sort of, and, and properly sort of spanking the bourgeois soul of the burghers of, of Christiania, and et cetera. So when Ibsen published When We Dead Awaken, Joyce, as an undergraduate, second year undergraduate, wrote a review that he sent off to the fortnightly review in London, which would be like getting something in the Atlantic or Harper's. It was a very big deal. Yeah. And it, that was sent to Ibsen. Ibsen read it and wrote to the editor of the fortnightly review and said, I have just spelled out, as I can, uh, this very kind review by a man named James Joyce. I should like to congratulate him. I understand he's a young man. The editor sent that to Joyce. Joyce got a letter from Ibsen, right. right, as an undergrad. And so he did what I think any of us would do. He didn't go to school for uh, five weeks, and he taught himself Dano-Norwegian. <laughs> Literally, he, and he wrote and a he letter. And he managed to do it, actually. He managed to do it, and he wrote a letter. This is Joyce's letter to Henrik Ibsen, March 1901. Honored sir, I write to give you greeting on your 73rd birthday and to join my voice to those of your well-wishers in all lands. You may remember that shortly after the publication of your latest play, When We Dead Awaken, an appreciation of it appeared in one of the English reviews, the fortnightly review, over my name. I know that you have seen it because some short time afterwards, Mr. William Archer wrote to me and told me that in a letter he had from you, some days before, you had written... I have read, or rather spelled out, a review in the fortnightly review by Mr. James Joyce, which is very benevolent and for which I should greatly like to thank the author if only I had sufficient knowledge of the language. Parentheses, my own knowledge of your language is not, as you see, great, but I trust you'll be able to decipher my meaning. I can hardly tell you how moved I was by your message. I am a young, a very young man, and perhaps the telling of such tricks of the nerves will make you smile. But I am sure if you go back along your own life to the time when you were an undergraduate at the university as I am, and if you think what it would have meant to you to have earned a word from one who held as high a place in your esteem as you hold in mine, you will understand my feeling. One thing only I regret, namely, that an immature and hasty article should have met your eye rather than something better and worthier of your praise. There may not have been any willful stupidity in it, but truly I can say no more. It may annoy you to have your works at the mercy of striplings, but I am sure you would prefer hot-headedness to nerveless and cultured paradoxes. What shall I say more? I have sounded your name defiantly through the college, where it was either unknown or known faintly and darkly. I have claimed for you your rightful place in the history of the drama. I have shown what, as it seemed to me, was your highest excellence, your lofty and personal power. Your minor claims, your satire, your technique and orchestral harmony, these too I advanced. Do not think me a hero worshipper, I am not so, and when I spoke of you in debating societies and so forth, I enforced attention by no futile ranting. But we always keep the dearest things to ourselves. 
I did not tell them what bound me closest to you. I did not say what I could discern dimly of your life was my pride to see, how your battles inspired me, not the obvious material battles, but those that were fought and won behind your forehead, how your willful resolution to wrest the secret from life gave me heart, and how in your absolute indifference to public canons of art, friends, and shibboleths, you walked in the light of your inward heroism. And this is what I write to you of now. Your work on earth draws to a close and you are near the silence. It is growing dark for you. Many write of such things, but they do not know. You have only opened the way, though you've gone as far as you could upon it, to the end of John Gabriel Borkman and its spiritual truth. But your last play stands, I take it, apart. But I am sure that higher and holier enlightenment lies onward. As one of the young generation for whom you have spoken, I give you greeting, not humbly because I am obscure and you in the glare, not sadly because you are an old man and I am a young man, not presumptuously nor sentimentally, but joyfully, with hope and with love, I give you greeting. The, the letter is a remarkable document. It's astonishing for its expression of Joyce's confidence and ambition and for the idea that he and Ibsen are on the same. One's young, you are, you know, I am young and you are old, but, you know, I send you greeting. It's actually quite, it's beautiful. It's one of my favorite, uh, very emotional piece to read, yeah, actually, yeah. in class. Um, so that... But he's young, he's 22 he's, or something. So, you know, the stories that we're going to get into talking yeah. about in a minute, Yuli, these are all written by someone in their early 20s. That's what I find remarkable. Yeah. But tell me one yeah. more thing about yes. Ibsen. Why is he so interested in a play that comes from a totally different place and he feels so connected? So the, the, the study of modern languages at UCD, in Ireland in particular, gave a connection to the continent. Mm. And the, the, the Irish diaspora from the 17th century to Europe created Irish communities of, of primarily through the Counter-Reformation and through Catholicism and through the spread of Irish colleges on the continent. And also... The 1890s. Joyce is a teenager. Paris is <laughs> Paris is is just electrifying the world with its with its culture of pleasure and of yeah. self-expression. Yeah. And Joyce is reading contemporary French poets. I mean, he uh, he's reading the symbolists. He's the, uh, not only Joyce, but the, yeah. but more broadly in in English uh, literary right. culture. France is making a significant impact. Ibsen's impact. As Tarl Moy's great book on Ibsen has shown us, Ibsen's work really was remarkable for the way that it filtered out of um, uh, out of uh, the the Denmark Norway uh, uh, constellation to to a much broader impact. And it comes out of its local context, the way Dubliners ultimately, in some way, will. But I want to ask one more yeah, thing before go ahead, we yeah. go. He goes to he goes to the continent. So, you know, I know very little about Irish literature. Wild keeps on trying to be a big deal in London, which he is until he's no longer a big deal and is completely canceled and sent to yeah. prison. Uh, ultimately, Beckett will go to Paris, but why not go to London from Dublin and try yeah. to make your big career there? So the majority of Irish writers did. 
Okay. Journalists in particular okay. were... Like one of the characters here who is yeah, the, the, yeah, yeah, the little class. Yeah, Ignatius Gallagher, yeah, who, who's, who's in Paris, yeah. but who's made his mark on the London press. Who is really right? annoying, yes. He's a terrible... Great, successful yeah. writer. He is, he's the, the full-time staff writer at The New Yorker who we well, all resent. Passive-aggressive <laughs> and, and, yes. in all sorts of ways. Um, so London really was... and and in many ways, still remains the, the sort of uh, market mm -hmm. that rewards um, a certain kinds of, of engagement. And Joyce did imagine himself at times as a journalist. And Joyce had a great fascination with with journalism hmm. and with the press. And it and it it's it's somewhat present in Dubliners, but it's it's a massive theme in, in Ulysses. Mm -hmm. um, and Joyce himself made extra money. Uh, while living in Trieste and writing these stories as a journalist. But the the larger question that you're asking about the relationship of London to Dublin, we should remember that W.B. Yeats spent as much time before the age of 30 in London as he did in Dublin. Mm. And and his father was, was Yeats's father was a painter, pre-Raphaelite painter resident in, in London. And, and the, the Irish community in London was, was really substantial. And there are a number of Irish authors who do go to London. One one writer that I, I love teaching is Parago Canaira, who's an Irish language writer, mm -hmm. whose novel Exile, or Derrick in Irish, is about a, a West of Ireland man who goes to London to make his fortune to marry the girl back home and gets hit by a, a motor car. This is in 1907. And maimed, and it's a novel about disability and madness, and and the danger of London. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, from the mid nineteenth century, especially after the famine, urban life in England was was structured around a massive Irish underclass. Mm, okay. And so London, London, Manchester, Liverpool, they represented a certain kind of danger uh, of 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 um, particularly of drink. Right and of of um, casual labor, becoming a navvy, becoming part of a structured underclass, and also enduring a profoundly anti-Irish racism that was structural in English society in the nineteenth and parts of the twentieth centuries. Okay. So I think Joyce, jo I, I, the bigger yeah. question though is that his facility with languages, yeah. his utter command of English, also meant that the the attractions of French, and the attractions of Italian. And the attractions also of a Catholic culture, where okay. the condescension that Joyce would understand coming from the establishment of Anglo-Ireland would not apply to him. There's a very, we talked about UCD and Trinity. There's a very famous quote from uh, John Pentland Mahaffey, the professor of Greek and classics at Trinity College Dublin, who when Joyce became well known, he had this famous statement where he said um, that that young man is proof, if ever proof were needed, what a, what a mistake it was to establish a university for the education of the aborigines of this island. And, huh. um, and he meant that this, he, these voices should have never been heard? This is the, 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 the Joyce's foul attention yeah. to the body to sex, to yeah. um, so we've unleashed unleashed some truth we don't want to know about. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Exactly. And, and, um, so, and so they're that, called the Aborigines of this island. He referred to the yeah. Catholics as the Aborigines of this island. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So th I mean that's a, that's an index yeah. uh, of the sort of Olympian heights to which 
the professoriate of Trinity um, uh, ascended and viewed below them right. the kind of teeming masses. And so Joyce had a class allegiance hmm. that that at the same time was committed to an ideal of truth and an ideal of of truth telling that I actually believe I and I, I argue that English literature gave to Joyce a profound um, notion of of rebellion and of um, you know the the Luther statement here I stand I can do no other that Joyce takes from Milton uh, and from Blake a kind of um, uh, profoundly powerful sense of I'm I I cannot say anything but the truth. And I'm going to stay for one moment here. What I when you are talking, what I find really interesting, what you're explaining, it's but it's not driven by political resentment. That's channeled directly into I'm from the working class, and it's a political, which is not that everybody has to do this, but there there is uh, there are other kinds of literature which is driven more with an overlay of there's a systemic problem here of this inequality, and I'm going to speak against it. It feels more, maybe because he was part of the middle class for a while in his life and enjoyed the education of that, but then he also, as he said, his family fell into misfortune and he lived, he himself was a poor person and he didn't just just look at people and was super educated. He actually was for a moment. Oh, he was, he was, he was, he made sure that he was economically precarious for his whole life. Okay. He guaranteed, he guaranteed Not a great financier or something. His sponsor said like, he couldn't handle money really. What was it? Or he liked to spend it or what was it? He, he was profligate (laughs) with it. When he had it, he spent it. He was, he had, uh, that filters very deeply and thematically into Ulysses. Ulysses has a remarkably sensitive, attention to this question of Joyce's alter ego character, Stephen Dedalus. Um, but to go back to, the, to that question of, of um, class and that against which Joyce was rebelling, I've identified Joyce as a Catholic in my remarks so far and as someone also who takes from a, p- a particular tradition of English literature's profoundly assertive sense of the self Right. Right. And of truth telling of and of 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 the artist as a truth teller. That at the same time has to be set against the idea that Joyce was rebelling against the Catholic Church from the time that he was a teenager, that the the idea of a vocation in the priesthood priesthood was the avenue toward material um, security and social respectability and social power in 19th century Ireland. That's a product of the, of the post-famine Catholic Church and its, its command of, of the social reality mm-hmm. of, of, uh, of uh, a society driven by the crisis as it was. So Joyce's decision to, to, you know, to, to bear the truth of his own lack of faith, it's structured his break with his family, his break with his mother in particular. And his mother dies when, after he had left Ireland at the age of 21 to go to Paris, supposedly to study medicine, but really to read. He went to the, to the library of Saint-Jean-Vieve and he sat and he read for six months. And he went out and he went to see women dance, right? And he went to restaurants. 
with what little money that he had. But for the most part, he was poor. So, so this is your study abroad version with great yeah. success. He yeah. becomes one of the greatest writers of all time. So he's going to shows. Yes. Uh, there's someone here, there, that character, he goes, he went to the Moulin Rouge. Yes. And it's, right. very, it's a very important reference, I guess, to see decadent life, yeah. show life, yeah. Very, very public, spectacular yeah. life, and well, he reads, and that's all he does. And eats in good restaurants or it, well, he decent eats where restaurants. He can. Yeah, there's a few interesting things about that. But more, more interestingly, mm. I think Joyce was really profoundly attracted to independent women, to to sort of to to women who who lived on their own, who mm. made their own way in the world. And these stories are also written when he's a young man who has eloped and is a common law marriage, you know, um, with a woman that he met June 16th, 1904, right. meets Nora Barnacle from Galway. And she was someone working as a, as a chambermaid in a hotel who had no pretensions about her, but who was also independent and was also sexually frank and, and sexually curious and not judgmental. And that independence from family, church, state, Joyce found it utterly remarkable. So even though there's, a, there's a, an enormous mm. gulf in education mm -hmm. between the two, she had, a, she had a profound character of stable um, ability to thrive in the, in the world and to deal with life practically that he didn't have. So, so there, you know, there's many marriages that that right. work that way, right. right? That work with with these kinds of differences, but it enabled Joyce to to channel all of his cultural energy and erotic energy and his his waywardness into into a um, a rebellion against the Catholic Church and right. against Catholic faith and the construction at the same time of a family, right? And he makes a he doesn't get married and and but he but he makes a family and. Um, he doesn't get married, meaning he had, doesn't have a... a, a they, they don't... J, J, uh, Nor, James Joyce and Nora Barnacle don't get married until um, quite late in in their lives when it was done for, for practical reasons yeah. about entry back into Ireland. and. Uh, so that's a very unusual... Yeah. It's pretty yeah. unusual. And some of these stories here, like the boarding house or something, they also say, what are the prospects... For yeah. anyone, especially for a woman. Yeah. So the, the boarding house is, is, it seems to me, one of Joyce's most, it's a brilliantly teachable story because it, it frankly looks at what happens in forced marriages or marriages that are marriages of convention and particularly to men whose masculinity is profoundly damaged. If I were to name one theme in Dubliners that I would that I would most consistently address in my teaching, it's Joyce's attention to the idea that masculinity in Ireland is a really compromised and damaged category mm. of being, mm. and it comes about through through I'd say several com compelling uh, confluences of forces. One of them is a colonial economy that does not offer avenues towards fulfillment. The other is uh, a rigidly censorious church that operates through the agency of women trying to control men and, and male life. Um, and then the, the third is, is just the sheer precarity of work. Mm -hmm. right? um, uh, and add to that a fourth, the manifestation of alcoholism as the signal mode of coping Mm. that reinforces this, the destructiveness that church and state kind of 
so have sewn into Irish life in a in a way that I think scholarship has really shown us is is colonial in character right? that 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 uh, despite being so integrated into the empire that the long concussion of Engl- of the English yeah. presence in Ireland has had a, a direct effect on on the structures of masculine f- um, personality and masculine strategies of coping and of of, of the emotional life of, and also the political life of the city, yeah. which is which is really Joyce's uh, uh, keenest desire is to capture political speech as a form of personality that is um, that is lost in a way lost that has lost its agency okay. and, is, and is directed just towards the past and towards the the wound of the fall right. of Parnell let me ask yeah. you this is probably overstating it a little bit but if you look at Dubliners I've never thought of it in this way you just said as written under colonial or proto-colonial conditions because if we use the word colonial literatures or sort of we usually tend to think of non-European places you know ruled and you know oppressed by European powers and you're saying actually Ireland can be read once you start to read it you're saying the whole idea of Irish subjectivity is kind of overdetermined by this situation It, well, yeah, the, the the proper term that is comes from Joyce himself, yeah, which is semi-colonial. Semi-colonial. Okay, is, so that's is, actually interesting. So he is, uses that himself. Yeah, to... that's that's Joyce's term in Finnegan's Wake. But okay, it's, but it's it's um, it's a brilliant use of a grammatical term from the English language yeah. to talk about Ireland and its its neither fish nor fowl status with respect to the colonial world. Yeah. The idea yeah. that it's part of the empire, but always um, really conditioned by by the language shift, yeah. right? And by by yeah. and also by the the presence, the massive presence in the past of a flourishing literary culture, and and the oldest vernacular literature in Europe hmm. is in the Irish language. Right? So so, and yet it has it has lost its. Um, Way in the modern world. So mm-hmm. the crucial point, uh, as I as I teach these these issues about how to think of Ireland colonially. First, Ireland is not exceptional in the colonial world at all for the extravagant violence or the the ferocity of of control or for the institutional sort of uh, mode by which the satrap forms of colonial power can be infiltrated. It's what distinguishes Ireland is the duration of the colonial mm-hmm. concussion, right? That it begins in the 13th century and it has spasmodic moments of, of waves of settler colonialism, right? That because of the nature of Gaelic society being tribal, right? Being mm-hmm. largely a very shifting set of allegiances mm-hmm. amongst dozens and dozens of forms of kingship and chieftainship that, that have different modalities. There's no unified kingship in Ireland. Mm. Where there's no feudal system in Ireland. There's mm. um, a thriving monastic culture in the Middle Ages that is very well adapted to the forms of politics of the Gaelic society. The problem for England, of course, was there was no one to conquer mm. to establish control, right? So, so it was whack-a-mole. It was, it was literally trying to negotiate with the Irish was an incredibly <laughs> frustrating experience for English colonial administrators. And it meant really that... that despite 
centuries of effort, the and and particularly with respect to the Reformation, Gaelic culture was, was sort of cellular in that sense, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, now the the language shift is pronounced. There's there's eight and a half million people in Ireland in 1845. About four and a half million of them speak Irish in 1845. When Joyce is a young man at 1900, there's about 125,000 who speak Irish. Does he know Irish? And at Joyce all? does not. Now he, he. And would that have been? So you're saying it's 125? That's almost wiped out as a language. Yes, it is. I mean, and and it's moved progressively towards the the fringe of the country, towards okay. the west coast. There are pockets along the coast in different. So places, he would have heard it occasionally, not. but it's not. Now, now he would have heard it, and he would have studied it. Yes. At, as part of the Gaelic League. The Gaelic League was founded in 1893 when Joyce is a young man yeah. as part of the language revival movement, which is part of the European-wide cultural nationalist yeah. movement that's part of the um, the imperial scramble, but also part of the, the resurgence of national right. uh, identity. It's part of the Olympic Games. It's part of, of you know the, the late 19th century modes of being that enforced the Westphalian idea of the, the universality of the nation state. Mm -hmm. We can see that leading towards catastrophe in World right. War One and after. But in Ireland, uh, it's the home rule movement. And, and it's the idea, you know, that it's visible in Ireland that the country has just declined dramatically. Right. And poverty is endemic when England is, is booming and thriving. Right. Only in one part of Ireland, in the, the most Protestant uh, part in the Northeast, was there an industrial revolution of, to speak of. Right. So I think Joyce's work and Joyce's relationship to the concept of Irish colonialism, really, he, he's, he's very anxious, as, and we see it in Gabriel Conroy in The Dead. There's an anxiety about the Irish language. There's an anxiety about the fact that he rebelled against the cultural prescriptions to learn it and to revive it. Mm. Um, I think he would rather never speak a language than speak a language poorly, mm -hmm. right? And so... Mm -hmm. So the, the modes of education that taught English students to speak French and to speak Italian, to speak German, were more well-established in a way than the ad hoc arrangements for teaching Irish in the Gaelic League. Mm -hmm. He went to lessons. He knew a lot more of the Irish language than most Joyce scholarship gave him credit for for a century. Hmm. Um, but there, there's, there, but there's, there's a few scholars who've right. really said, wait, if we look at how much he read in translation, Right, because yeah. there was a huge translation right. effort in the late 19th century. And then psychologically, his sense is that his wife is very close. She's a generation removed from Irish speaking. And Joyce's own family were related to a large Irish-speaking clan in uh, North Mayo and, and Northeast Galway in Ireland, where in the 1880s, there was a very famous case um, of a judicial execution of an Irish speaker who was accused of, of murder, the Mam Chasna murders, which is a, a terribly brutal murder of, in a farmhouse. And a man named Patrick Joyce was tried for it, and he didn't speak English. Mm -hmm. And his translator didn't speak Irish very well. And so, so there, there was an enormous outcry about the execution of Patrick Joyce because the people who were responsible for the murder said he wasn't involved. Okay. And, I think Joyce has had, had an awareness of a history that he was separated from. And also, we should remember, he left Ireland. Right, and I, I want to man. stay with his language for a moment. So Nora yeah. is one generation removed. He yeah. is 
through family, but really, like most people that you're saying in Dublin, removed several generations. And he doesn't believe, it seems to me, and you have to tell me yeah. whether this is right, he doesn't believe you can revive this old tradition and move in that direction. He wants to go in another direction. And then when you brought up in, in boarding house when the man has to kind of confess his affair with yeah. the daughter's uh, Polly. Polly. Yeah. And he talks to the priest and he feels relieved in a way and also ashamed because the priest kind of makes him tell every detail of this uh, of this adultery. This is not, no, this not, not adulterous, this affair. And there was something odd that he's kind of compelled to tell this yeah. other man who he is as a man. And he's both ashamed and finally unburdened and he, but I'm kind of interested what Joyce thinks what language is available to people under these conditions and what's remarkable in Dublin is that this these people speak and reveal themselves but not in a way that we would think in a super sophisticated yeah. literary philosophical yeah. way but the, he unburdens himself there, and it seems to be a really important moment when you see a man who's finally able to say who he is, but he's not happy with who yeah. he is at all. So a couple of things about that. There's a great phrase by my, my first teacher, of, second teacher of Joyce, a high school teacher of Joyce, but as an undergraduate, I studied with Hugh Kenner oh, and yeah. Johns Hopkins. And Kenner has a phrase in his first book on Joyce where he said, Joyce excelled more than any other modern writer at constructing plausible limits for expressive competence. Huh. It's, a, it's a brilliant critical phrase. At plausible limits for, for expressive, expressive competence. competence, right? Competence. Competence. So, okay. So, so, um, in other words, yeah. the, the great example that he uses is in the story, the sisters. Yeah. At the very end of the story, the sisters, at they're at the wake, or and they're talking about James Flynn, the, the priest who has died, and his sisters refer back to this desire that he had to get a car on one of those rheumatic wheels, those new rheumatic wheels. She laid a finger against her nose and frowned. Then she continued. But still and all, he kept on saying that before the summer was over, he'd go out for a drive one fine day, just to see the old house again, where we were all born down in Irish town, and take me and Nanny with him. If we could only get one of them new-fangled carriages that makes no noise that Father O'Rourke told him about, then with the rheumatic wheels, for the day cheap, he said, that Johnny rushes over the way there, and drive out the three of us together of a Sunday evening. He'd had his mind set on that. Poor James. The Lord have mercy on his soul, said my aunt. Poor James. <laughs> Poor James. So, interestingly, that, that story called The Sisters, and it's about the child. It's not the, So The Sisters, it's a very interesting story for, for a number of reasons. But that idea that she gets rheumatic for pneumatic, right, is, is a perfect expression of, yeah. the, of the way that she misuses language correctly. Right. So tell us for a moment. So just give us a setting of the story. So you just yeah. the, the so so um, structurally, we want to we want to think about Dubliners as a whole. Yeah, and so it's fourteen stories, and they're constructed. Joyce originally planned them with the idea that they were going to move from uh, childhood, adolescence, maturity, and public life, mm -hmm. and that was his way of trying to do what he does in all of his work which is strive towards the concept of totality, of a totalizing imagination. Mm -hmm. So in Dubliners, it's, it's a kind of episodic attention to that. And the first story begins with this 
remarkable construction of a, how a child, a, but not a, he's not an adolescent child and he's not a baby child. He's, he's someone at, on the cusp of learning mm -hmm. and who's has enough school learning to teach him something about the mystery of words. And so the word paralysis, which is the master theme for Joyce's, for the collection, right? Joyce's paralysis is the theme that unites all the stories. He views the colonial condition of Ireland as having induced a kind of stasis and paralysis mm -hmm. on the emotional and psychological lives of the people of the city. But the character has this priest friend, Father James Flynn, who, who um, sits in this back room of his sister's drapery shop, quizzing the little boy about Arcana and developing a relationship that the adults in, in the child's life, his uh, uh, old Cotter and his uncle. Interestingly, most of these early stories don't have intact nuclear families. Right. Children are being raised by aunts and uncles. That's a, that's a sign, again, we should, we should pay attention to in terms of the assumptions we make about, about family structure mm -hmm. right? and, and that Joyce is keenly aware mm. of the improvisational nature of, of family in conditions of precarity and scarcity, mm -hmm. right? So, but in this story, what I find most um, just remarkable is that Joyce centers it in the awareness of the child's apprehension of the way that adults don't speak the truth. Mm -hmm. And that there are the use of ellipses in the first pages in the speech of old Cotter circles around the idea that this priest is cor corrupted in some, in some profound way. Now, it's, it's worth remarking here, right, that in the first two stories of this book, Joyce addresses a priest who is disgraced who is clearly an addict? He's he's put, putting pulverized tobacco up. He's he's trembling, right? There's a theory that he's actually as advanced tertiary syphilis, right? Which and and that that Joyce takes that from Ibsen, right? From uh, from Ibsen's work. Um, but this priest is a broken man, right? Right. And the the conversation at the end about poor James is reflective back on that broken man. But the child didn't have any perception of the idea that the priest was a broken man. Yeah. He just had, had normalized this life. Right. But he picks up after his death on the idea that the adults had an anxiety about the child and that it centered on the body. It mm -hmm. centered on healthfulness. Right. So the so the mm -hmm. the the uncles says you, know, you should things, you should go out you know, box your own corner. Right? Yeah. He mentions taking a cold bath every morning, yeah, right? Which yeah. explicitly raises this question about sex and, and right. bodily discipline. But the interesting question about the, the opening stories is they both name sort of sexual deviancy or potential right. sexual deviancy. And that's a matter that it took a century to emerge. And the second into story Irish cultural in an encounter. encounter. Tell us what happens there. Well, in, in an encounter, the, um, these two boys are reading American adventure stories in school, right? They're hiding in these uh, sensational novels and they get this idea of going on an adventure, right? And going, taking a ferry and going out to the Pigeon House, to Bull right. Island in, right. in the middle of, uh, of Dublin Bay. But along the way, they wind up at a, a specific location that Joyce sets quite a lot of his of crucial 
moments in his fiction. So an encounter take this takes place just at the bottom of of Sandy Mount in Dublin Bay, and it's uh, there's a there's a field there where the an encounter takes place. It's also near where Stephen Dedalus has his vision of the Bird Girl and a portrait mm-hmm. of the artist, and it's also where Bloom. And Gertie McDowell in the Nausicaa section of Ulysses have this very complicated uh, experience together. But in an encounter, the boys, um, these two boys encounter this man who quizzes them at first very aggressively about what books they've read and what kinds of dangerous topics they might have encountered in their reading. And he tries to make a difference between the two boys about one being a smart one, another being a bad one. And then he gets this entranced look in his eyes and he goes to the other end of the field. And it's not narrated what he does, but it's fairly clear from the inference that he masturbates. And they say, I say, look at what he's doing. And then he comes back and his language is dramatically changed and he's angry and he's talking about discipline and whipping boys. He said that my friend was a very rough boy and asked did he get whipped often at school. I was going to reply indignantly that we were not national schoolboys to be whipped, as he called it, but I remained silent. He began to speak on the subject of chastising boys. His mind, as if magnetized again by his speech, seemed to circle slowly round and round its new center. He said that when boys were that kind, they ought to be whipped and well whipped. When a boy was rough and unruly, there was nothing would do him any good but a good sound whipping. A slap on the hand or a box on the ear was no good. What he wanted was to get a nice, warm whipping. I was surprised at this sentiment and involuntarily glanced up at his face. As I did so, I met the gaze of a pair of bottle-green eyes peering at me from under a twitching forehead. I turned my eyes away again. Now, the interesting features of that, and this is where Joyce teaches us to read very carefully for detail, because that elderly man has nice clothes that are very shabby. He has bad teeth, but his accent is very refined, and he has a very advanced literary education, and he's, he's... it professes to be very widely read. And he's also someone who is a sexually unanchored person who's clearly uh, inappropriately engaging with young little boys, right? So the, the idea, it seems to me, that the story reinforces it, but if you look at the details of an otherwise frightening and reprehensible man, you pick up on the idea that the child is fascinated by the idea of what made this guy become what he is. Mm-hmm. Why does he not have a place in the world? Why is he in the middle of the afternoon masturbating in a field near these children who are playing hooky? Right. I think it connects to go back to the boarding house. One of the crucial things about Bob Doran, who marries Polly under the force of having gotten her pregnant after Mrs. Mooney, the madam of the house, Mrs. Mooney dealt with moral problems as a cleaver deals with meat, right? This this very uh, who is the mother of the boarding mother, house? Where the her mother daughter, of Polly, her yeah. daughter works, and then this is a tenant in the boarding house, yes. and she observes this affair unfold, and, and it's very back from it, and she doesn't it intervene happen. as if until it's ripe for until she, Polly is in is in the family way, as they would say. 
Polly knew that she was being watched, but still her mother's persistent silence could not be misunderstood. There had been no open complicity between mother and daughter, no open understanding, but though people in the house began to talk of the affair, still Mrs. Mooney did not intervene. Polly began to grow a little strange in her manner, and the young man was evidently perturbed. At last, when she judged it to be the right moment, Mrs. Mooney intervened. She dealt with moral problems as a cleaver deals with meat, and in this case, she had made up her mind. And the, the question is, why? Why is that his only option? Yeah. How does this work? And yeah. the reason why is because Bob Doran has a job yeah. where? With a Catholic wine merchant, huh. right? So if there's anything that's a stable business in Dublin, it's a wine merchant. <laughs> and actually, it's, it's the wine merchant that's in that story still exists. So right. block away from Trinity College, still there. But, but, but Joyce's attention to the connection between religion and p- the political economic decision-making means that Mrs. Mooney chose Bob Doran because of his job mm-hmm. and knew that working for a Catholic wine merchant, there's no way he would give up his job by ditching on a young pregnant girl because she would immediately go and he'd get him fired. And Mrs. Mooney at that moment thinks of all the mothers who can't get their daughters off their hands. So suddenly she turns into someone who's not protecting her daughter, but realizes she's been scheming to get her daughter married off to this guy who got her pregnant. Because Polly's a mouth to feed. She she refers to her literally as a mouth to feed. And then Joyce also pays attention. Again, every detail is, is significant. Joyce also pays attention to what to the way that Polly's mouth is that of a perverse little Madonna. So he pays attention to the erotic shape of her mouth and to her her attractiveness, but also to the idea that it connects with with a perverse Madonna, with the, the compelling sexual attractiveness of this terrifying holy symbol, right? right? Which, which again evokes a whole range of Catholic prohibitions on the body mm. that James Joyce himself would struggle with, and that his his again Stephen Dedalus would would become right. would become central right. to to a portrait and, of the artist. And if so. we stay the the end of an encounter, it's, a lot of the stories end in these very unexpected ways. I think it's become a model in the twentieth century in a way, sort of how to end a, a story or not end it, and then. In the encounter, they go out, they want to have an adventure, they read Wild West stories, but then they go into the, the bay, as you said, then they find this man who basically, in some sense, actually, whatever word we want to use, he accosts them or harasses them or abuses them only through language. He keeps on upping it every single time. He first talks about, what are you studying? Then you must be a bad boy. You should be whipped. Do you have a girlfriend? What would you do with a girlfriend? I want a pretty girlfriend. And it becomes more and more sexual. But it's only language. Yes. As far as we know, he doesn't touch them, doesn't come close to them. And it's kind of unsettling. And then at the very end, I'm kind of curious whether you think they go home and they had their adventure, which is not at all what they expected. They they got exactly what they could have never had imagined, really. That's right. And and this is a the ending is really odd because the two boys kind of they reconnect and they have to be reconnected because otherwise they're vulnerable to this man. But, but not they, in a happy way we got out of this, but in a kind of inconclusive way. Something happened, and then I guess they gave each other fake names to deceive this man, and then he yeah. says at the end he ran, the, the friend runs to him, he ran as if to bring me aid, and I was penitent, for in my heart I had always despised him a little. Yeah. What do you make of like what happened in that story, which is the beginning, as you said, these three stories which are about childhood. Yeah. 
So I think the crucial part about this is Joyce is constructing a perspective on the world of the sensitive child and the sensitive reader. Right? Mm. So, so uh, the sisters is all about interpretation, nomad, the nomad. Mm. It's, it's literally the, the child's trying to figure out what it means when people don't say what they mean. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to figure out all the symbols of life that are around him yeah. and struggling to make meaning of his half-finished sentences with yeah. the priest, right? In an encounter, the, the child's decision based on reading to go out and have an adventure, reading and literature motivate him to go out into the world. He goes out into the world and what he experiences is not what he thought was going to happen to him. And at that moment, the difference between the sensitive boy who's read all the books and the kid who goes off, and this is a perfect image, the Murphy, who, the other child, right. goes off to chase a cat. Right? Right. So, I mean, to give the perfect, right. the perfect thing of, of an unthinking, non-intellectual child goes off to chase a cat while the narrator converses with the strange man. And then we have this beautiful reversal about, about the community of the two being reestablished in relationship to the threat. But the child realizes that I'm not like him. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I always despised him a little. He'd, al he's, he'd always been a, less, a little more coarse, mm. a little more physically v rambunctious or violent or something. And so... The problem for the intellectual is what do you do with your insight? What do you do okay. with your relationship to community if really what it does is give you uh, a vision of the world that's that's not comforting, that's not... And yet, at the same time, you he wishes that he were not the person who had who had been singled out by the old man. But that's interesting that the... That the perceptiveness of a of a of a literate child or a very a precocious or an int or someone who uses intelligence murphy's more of a person of action yes. runs around chases the cat throws rocks at the cat but it doesn't produce in the first one empathy in a good way he's actually open to other people but these people are very unpredictable and unreliable like people are yeah and it doesn't start you out on a program in these first three stories. The next one, Araby, where he tries to buy a present for the girl he loves. It yes. fails grandiosely in buying this little trinket. But there's something that you open yourself up to others. And what we call empathy, I think here means others are different from you. Yeah. It doesn't mean you're now connected and there's a kind of warm, fuzzy feeling of shared humanity. But yes. actually, shared humanity in Dubliners is the exposure to this huge range of humanity. Yes. And, and the idea of comfort is really not present. The yeah. idea of it's just not, there's just not a comforting world. Insight is at the cost of alienation. Hmm. And, and it's, it's offered as what literature does. So literature will give you insight, but it will produce an alienation from uh, from innocence and from naivete. I think that's quite important. I'm staying with this for a moment yes. because there's this kind of general understanding that literature teaches you empathy, that people should read more novels. And in our you know divided world, I hear this. You hear this every single day. Everybody says, "Oh, people should read more books yeah. or watch movies." And what you're saying is quite different, a bit more nuanced. To say, we will get to know others. 
But it doesn't mean we actually are like them or we even understand them. We maybe even realize we cannot understand them. And that is already, you know, that's a kind of yeah. a distanced connection. It's well, not, oh, I get who they are. And I can see actually in these stories, people encounter each other and are completely at a loss because they realize the other person is motivated by other things, wants different things. It doesn't map onto what you want. So I think here alienation is not the opposite of connection. It's a deepening of connection that actually humanity is very, very disparate. I, 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 I agree with you thoroughly. I would argue in a longer perspective yeah. beyond Dubliners that Joyce is leading toward overcoming yes. in, in, in the course of his life toward overcoming this this sense of a of a fallen and corrupted humanity that that the gift of intelligence yeah. produces uh, not necessarily contempt now th th there's not there's not an intellectual contempt running through these stories there's a there's an observational uh, commitment to clarity of perspective and to an unrelenting um, dedication to the truth as it is seen, right? Mm -hmm. and, the, and the letters mm -hmm. that Joyce wrote, these, these stories had a very hard time being published. It took a decade. Which, remarkable. Yeah. I, I actually think that's quite important that he tried several, and the people were afraid to publish them and it took him over 10 years? Yeah, uh, it took about eight years. Eight years, yeah. Yeah, eight, nine years, 1915 when they finally get published. Yeah. And, and, uh, and the printer is making objections to language and to aspects of the stories. And so there, there are remarkable passages in the letters to Grant Richards, to the publisher, where Joyce talks about what he's doing and why he's doing it. Those, those he says really something worth... really, I think there's one letter that I saw somewhere, he says something like, you, are, you retard the progress of civilization itself <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, if you don't publish them. Um, I actually have, I have one, I can reach a little quote here. Right? Um, as for my part and share in the book, I have already told all I have to tell. My intention was to write a chapter of the moral history of my country, and I chose Dublin for the scene because that city seemed to me the center of paralysis. I have tried to present it to the indifferent public under four of its aspects, childhood, adolescence, maturity, and public life. The stories are arranged in this order. I have written it for the most part in a style of scrupulous meanness and with the conviction that he is a very bold man who dares to alter in the presentment, still more to deform, whatever he has seen and heard. I cannot do any more than this. I cannot alter what I have written. All these objections to, with the, to which the printer is now the mouthpiece arose in my mind when I was writing the book, both as to the themes of the stories and their manner of treatment. Had I listened to them, I would not have written the book. I have come to the conclusion that I cannot write without offending people. Hmm. Uh, th th that goes back to the question about, about the truth. Mm -hmm. Th the question about empathy, mm -hmm. I think Joyce as a young man is less concerned with empathy. I think he's much more concerned with mm -hmm. defiance, with proving people wrong. Right? Over the course of his work, and particularly in Ulysses, yeah. there's, a, there's a, 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 a much greater investment in the idea of of the everyday becoming redemptive through through the the power of the mind to to reflect on the, the sheer unlikelihood of being alive right and, and of and of living with other human beings and, yeah. and living in culture and living in history and living in time 
all of that, I think, is a work that Joyce goes through stagily, and then ultimately, I think he tries to he he tries to do too much in a way with Finnegan's Wake to to construct a a book that is the the whole history of of all forms of empathy and all forms yeah. of connection. But I think you get at something very important about the idea that the stories. The, what do they produce? Like, what, what what do they do to the reader? Right? My own view is the reason why James Joyce is so wonderful to read and why it is such a gift and such a joy to me to teach is because he teaches you how to read. He teaches you how to read him. Right? There, there's no... You have to pay attention to detail in order to understand these stories. From the very beginning, yeah, yeah. they ask you to reflect on the meaning yeah. of words, yeah. and they ask you to understand that people don't often say what they mean, right. that, and they often say things that, that actually try to hide what they mean. And so from the very beginning, one way to understand Dubliners is as a drama of interpretation, okay. a drama of occluded meaning, and a drama of the struggle that reading is just, is just a gift to us in our attempt to understand the world. And you mean reading not as a decoding of some other meaning, right? It's not you listen closely, you get it right, but you actually, you get the fact that people also misspeak or don't tell you what they mean. Yes. Because reading isn't, oh, I'm going to ask you over and over until I get it. That's actually this idea that there's some transparency ultimately. I think here what you're yes. saying is in the beginning, the child and the young man, they listen to each other and realize this person is doesn't mean what they say, or maybe doesn't even know what they want to they say. They don't know that they don't. They mean don't what know. They that's what he said. Occluded. Yeah. yeah. It's occluded to themselves, yeah. but that doesn't mean they're ignorant or stupid. They don't know who they are to themselves in this moment, and therefore they cannot properly communicate their motivation or their intention or something like that. That's great. So, Uli, this leads us to to one crucial dimension of technique. In the stories, right? So we can we talk about plot and social representation, character, um, uh, uh, sociological right. forces in history, etc. But technically, at the level of the sentence, Joyce, over the course of Dubliners, became increasingly attuned to the capacities of free indirect discourse to allow narration to take on the color of personality. And, and to shift imperceptibly to move. I, I mean, I think The Dead is, 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 the, is the great masterwork of, mm -hmm. of Joyce's early style and of the book. Um, and it begins with, of course, with I think the, the most teachable and the most uh, notable instance of free and direct discourse, right? Lily, the caretaker's daughter, was literally run off her feet. And I always begin that story with an attention to the idea that did James Joyce make a mistake between, not know the difference between literal and figurative? We know that he knew the difference between literal and figurative, but Lily didn't, right? And so that that story begins with a servant girl being overwhelmed right. with what she's being asked to do. And then she narrates her position in this household with these old women and what she's what kind of work she does. Right. And and then that leads into our perspective on her being interrupted by the arrival of the man, right. of Gabriel Conroy. Yeah. Right who immediately makes mistakes with her, right? And, and asks, her, asks her about men, and then we realize that she's encountered the guys in two gallants earlier yeah. in the book, right? She's uh. the men that is now is only all palaver and what they get out of you. And they get out of her a coin. A coin, and, yeah. and two gallants they do. I mean, and yeah. 
that's not Lily because yeah, 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 that's right. a country girl who's yeah. who's dressed very but poorly. But that's like Lily. <laughs> yes, it is. It's and and uh, yeah. so the, first that attention to yeah. the servant class is really remarkable, right? And it recalls Bruce Robbins' brilliant work on on the servant's hand and the importance of the invisible servant structure and labor structure in mm. the Victorian novel. Joyce is very aware of um, of who's in his stories and what they do, but with Lily. Gabriel asks her two questions. He gets these things wrong. He's like, so you're still in school? And she's like, well, no, I'm out of school this year and more. In other words, I wasn't in school last year when I saw you, and I'm not still not in school. And his immediate assumption is she's going to get married, and she's, that's not for me because of the way that men are. Right. And he takes it personally. He gets incredibly flustered, and he gives her money. And we, so we get this exchange of money going back to the servant girl that was taken earlier out of the guilt of a bourgeois man who quickly we learn, I think, to read that story as a story about someone for whom women are central in his life and whose relationships with women are so important to him. And yet, despite being an intellectual, in fact, perhaps because he's an intellectual, he's, he's screened the reality of women's lives from himself. Okay. He's, he's had an ability yeah to construct in his head an understanding of women that's kept them at a distance. And so Lily says, you know, in the story, um, the only thing that, uh, in, in her narration, the third person narration, the only thing that the Mrs. Morkins will, won't stand is back answers. And then we see Gabriel getting back answers from Lily, back answers from Greta, back answers from um, Molly. Molly Ivers. So there are three women, and just he yeah. goes into this event. It's his aunt's house. He's yeah. the nephew. Lily is the servant girl. Molly is another guest uh, who went who who went to university with Gabriel and studied modern languages. And who criticizes him for something he wrote or for writing is. a review? Yes. yeah, in, and, in an English newspaper. And he's in the, totally in the Daily Mail. Yeah. unsettled. He's this actually. Yeah. He's sort of the star of the party. He gives the toast. He's kind of everybody wants him to be there. You kind of get excited for him. It's like another party scene. And you're thinking, well, this is going to be great. And then even before he checks his coat, he's already totally flustered, screws it up even more by kind of humiliating himself and Lily by giving her this money, which is inappropriate. Then Molly criticizes him, and he's completely unsettled again and gets defensive and says, I'm going to take this out on Molly at the the expense of my aunts. And you're thinking, wow, this man is really invested of what women think of him, but somehow can't get... Yeah. To let them even see him. Yeah. So I, I, I think that that, that, that broader architecture yeah. of women's relationships really does structure the story, yeah. but it moves towards, I mean, towards the conclusion yeah. of the story. And, yeah. and I, I, I think uh, there again, when teaching yeah. this story, which is, is one of the great gifts that as a literature yeah. scholar and a literature professor that I can, that I can experience, um, the stagal movement uh, of this evening that that really celebrates the life of the middle class yeah. and its pretensions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, this is a generous story in the sense that these are people who have um, a life filled really with music, right? The ants are, are devoted to music. They've been kicked out of the choir by the Pope, so there's an mm. interesting thing there. And they... They're, they're maintained by their niece, again, mm-hmm. a broken household. They're maintained by the niece who teaches uh, contemporary music. Um, 
but it's an it's an evening of dancing, it's an evening of performances, and it's an evening of conversation about music, and and all of the details of that are rich, and they bear a great deal of attention and conversation and discussion. But the point is that it all leads towards the way that this one song, sung casually at the very end of the night, sparks this intense emotional experience in Greta Conroy, Gabriel's wife. Mm -hmm. And Gabriel is constantly accommodating himself, arranging himself, forcing himself into the position of who he is, of who he thinks he is, mm -hmm. who he thinks he should be, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he thinks he should be is a lover. And this is a night he's going to be a lover because right. the kids are at home. Every every married person knows how important <laughs> this is. a night be. in the hotel. A night in the hotel, exactly, <laughs> where we're, we're free to be ourselves and we're, we're not, um, we're, we're in privacy, right? And so he's looking forward to this, this moment of pleasure and, and of connection to his wife. And this song that comes out of two pasts, it comes out of her past, mm. because a boy used to sing it, and that's why she's entranced by it. But it also comes out of the past of Irish history, because the song is about a jilted woman, a lover, from a place in Galway called Ockram, which is where the last defense, the last stand of the Catholics in the Williamite mm. Wars took place in 1691. After the defeat of the Battle of the Boyne, it's where, under and, and the uh, victories of William of Orange, it's where the Catholic Confederation under Patrick Sarsfield is finally smashed and where the wild geese then finally leave Ireland. And so it's a, it's a song about a lover being bereft and jilted by an aristocrat, but it's also a song that evokes the loss of the Catholic hopes, the loss of, mm -hmm. of the Stuart, the Stuart uh, Jacobite uh, you know, pretension to restitution, to Gaelic supremacy. Mm -hmm. So all of that is in the background, but Gabriel doesn't know it, right? And as someone who, who writes reviews of English poetry and the English papers and who goes to the continent to mm -hmm. keep up with the languages oh, okay. and to be, to be a successful yeah, yeah, yeah. intellectual, right? The fact is that what's closest to him is that his wife, whom he says, you'll remember in the conversation with Molly Ivers, Molly Ivers says, will you come to us to the Aran Islands? Will Greta come too? She's from Connet, isn't she? And Gabriel says her people are. And he, that's not true. I mean, she, she grew up there. She lived yeah. in, in Galway as a child, and, and she spent time in, with her grandmother, who still lived in Galway. So, the, so Gabriel has this idea that she is from Dublin. She's from Black Rock, where he lives, the salubrious mm -hmm. thing. And he's trying, in a way, to ring fence this question of Irish. And he, he explodes. He says, Irish is not my language, right? And Molly Ivers, with a, she does not wear a low-cut bodice, right? Mm -hmm. And she's got this buttoned-up thing. She challenges him sexually, she challenges him culturally, she challenges him intellectually, and he can't risk a grandiose phrase with her, which is the phrase mm. that she used. All of this leads to this, this moment where Gabriel thinks that he's gonna have this reunion and it doesn't happen, right, with his wife. And because she's overcome by the memory of this young boyfriend, mm -hmm. lover, uh, friend, who she thinks died for him because he stayed out and, and got a cold and dies of TB. Right, which is a scourge right. in Ireland at the time. It's really, uh, um, you know, it's shot through every Irish right. family as experience of TB in, in this period before 1920. 19, uh, um, so what I want to bring the conversation towards is the lyricism that emerges at the end of the dead right. 
is these mellifluous, gorgeously structured, chiasmic sentences, right? And this expansion of observation and consciousness right. that, that has this power of, of reaching toward a communion with the dead and the idea of something, the snow, the, the imagery of the snow, right. unifying right. the living right. and the dead. The way, I, the way I've come to understand that is that you know, the, the crisis that, that the story constructs for Gabriel Conroy and the defeat of his hopes, the defeat of his pretensions, the question is what does it lead him to an awareness of? And I think that the narration of that story and the free indirect discourse merges from centering in Gabriel's mind mm -hmm. and it gradually expands mm -hmm. out. And the way I've come to understand this mm -hmm. now is, is by really through the, some electrifying work in the philosophy of mind mm -hmm. that's emerged in the last two decades. It's associated with affect theory and, and particularly with theories of consciousness that seek to get outside of the idea of consciousness being seated in the brain mm -hmm. and that understand that consciousness is, is something that's reciprocal, mm -hmm. that's, that's actually social, mm -hmm. it's based in language, mm -hmm. but, it's, but it's always dependent on the other, right? And Gabriel's thoughts at the conclusion of the dead and their r radical expansion and, and, and movement, they seem to me to give a really profound... Mm -hmm. Iteration of what Alva Noe refers to as getting out of our heads, and, and getting which means also getting out of ourselves, getting over ourselves, mm -hmm. right? Which is what Gabriel needs to, needs to get over himself and become a listener, right? To recognize that these women are real; they, they're actually a, as alive as he is. He had never felt like that himself towards any woman, but he knew that such a feeling must be love. The tears gathered more thickly in his eyes, and in the partial darkness he imagined he saw the form of a young man standing under a dripping tree. Other forms were near. His soul had approached that region where dwell the vast hosts of the dead. He was conscious of, but could not apprehend, their wayward and flickering existence. His own identity was fading out into a gray and palpable world. The solid world itself, which these dead had one time reared and lived in, was dissolving and dwindling. A few light taps upon the pane made him turn to the window. It had begun to snow again. He watched sleepily the flakes, silver and dark, falling obliquely against the lamplight. The time had come for him to set out on his journey westward. Yes, the newspapers were right. Snow was general all over Ireland. It was falling on every part of the dark central plain, on the treeless hills, falling softly upon the Bog of Allen, and, farther westward, softly falling into the dark, mutinous Shannon waves. It was falling, too, upon every part of the lonely churchyard on the hill where Michael Fury lay buried. It lay thickly drifted on the crooked crosses and headstones, on the spears of the little gate, on the barren thorns. His soul swooned slowly as he heard the snow falling faintly through the universe and faintly falling, like the descent of their last end, upon all the living and the dead. What's really beautiful while you're describing this, that this consciousness is not about deepening your own consciousness as a separate entity. But at the end of the dead, I also think strangely at the end of a painful case, he sees himself now not lost because his wife had this 
lost lover and he's disconnected and she rejects him and he's very disappointed, sexually frustrated. He's like, then he finally yes. goes, lies, lies down next to her on the bed and then he says, he thinks, but I'm actually connected on a deeper, on a different level. I actually also will fade in people's memory. I will also be forgotten like this boy who I didn't want to remember, who is a disruption in my life. He's yeah. suddenly this ang thing of anger. Like, I didn't even know my wife had this. Yeah. But instead of staying there, he says, but we all will be these yeah. things that someone else will not know, but someone will have great meaning attached. It's very beautiful how he, and it's yeah. what you're saying in the language, it moves very gradually. His, and he falls asleep and there's snow and he kind of, you're thinking, is it just falling asleep? But he's not falling asleep in a simple way. He's actually lapsing into from one state of consciousness which is defended the beginning of the story yes, that's right i'm this male like these women are kind of to this woman who's next to me he looks at her as if he hadn't been married to her he said we're actually connected but not in the way i thought yes. that i own or know or can have take charge of her there's this kind of sort of yes. very close to a rape idea like he's, i'm going to take possession but instead, he says, I'm disconnected. And that disconnection, we're all in this. Yes, that's right. It's very beautiful. You're right. It's, but it's, it's actually into language goes there. The language performs yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the expansion of consciousness or the recognition that his own consciousness. He says it was it was uh, it was one thing that he observes is how small a part he played in her life. Now, that uh, that's a brilliant phrase in the story because it's not accurate. Right. It is part of his overstatement of his defensiveness yeah. as it is diminishing. Yeah. And so he did play an enormous part in her life. He, they, he's the father of her children. He's, the, he's a, his, his companion. But in terms of figuring her autonomy yeah. and her separate consciousness, the question is, what part do we, does mm -hmm. anyone play in anyone else's life? And the idea of... of or the ideal of a marriage as a totalizing blending of consciousness. I think Joyce is very interested in the idea of, of the autonomy of the individual, but of the crucial interdependence of every self for the gift of selfhood, right? That selfhood is something that is not a, an individualized possession. We only know it through a language, right? That is not, it's the common possession of all, not the singular possession of one. I think that's one of the reasons why Joyce makes Gabriel an English teacher, right, and a literature yeah, teacher, yeah, yeah, is because yeah. he thinks that his mastery over language makes him a master yeah, over language. But in fact, mass language is always his master. It always exceeds his control over it. And if he doesn't have humility, if he doesn't have the humility to think that I'm I'm merely someone who is part of something, right. and and the other point about language is the the real people who give it to us are dead, right? The the people who right, really right, shape right. it are not the people who are speaking it, but the people who gave it to the people who speak yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's true figuratively in a beautiful way through the idea of the song, right? And so in Irish culture, there's there's um there's a uh, an idea that the song borrows the singer, right? Huh. Right? That the song borrows the singer for a little while, and and. And then it goes to another singer who hears it. And the, the idea of, the, of the, the culture respecting people who carry a tune, who carry many tunes, mm. the culture carriers, right? They're the people mm. to be respected because you can go to them and you can get something from the past mm. that it would otherwise disappear, and everything disappears, right? Mm -hmm. So music 
gives us a way of thinking about consciousness as something that we're borrowing out of a larger source of things, mm-hmm, right? And I think essentially that idea of, you know, it, it's also figured in a musical instrument, right? Where, so in a folk yeah. culture, the yeah. idea is, you know, you don't burn an instrument when a person dies. It goes to a child or it goes to someone else. Yeah. And then the, the, you know, one way to think about the song is, you know, that flute, that was being played in the 1840s yeah, 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 and it'll be yeah, played yeah. 100 years from yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. What role does the individual subject play in relationship to that? And I think that that beautiful movement at the conclusion of the dad yeah. and the idea that the lyrical agency, the spirit, the spectacular, soft, uh, warm, reassuring sound of the sentences comes not from Gabriel's supervening consciousness, from his creativity, but it's as if, you know, what many poets will say is that I'm a medium for right, the language. Right, right. I'm, not, I'm not in charge of what I'm saying right. much of the time. A lot of things, I, I didn't put it there. The poem came to me and let me speak the poem. It was there right. when I found it that way. Right. And I think Joyce really believed that the that the agency of poetry wasn't just in the hands of the poet. And that Gabriel is not a poet. He's he's someone and yet at the same time yeah. he's someone who who Joyce uses to get his most beautiful I mean that, that last paragraph I think is the most beautiful mm-hmm. in a way that Joyce ever allowed himself to write because he's very suspicious <laughs> of the facility of the Irish with cadence and rhythm and <laughs> rhyme. And, you know, there's, there's a sort of sense in which the, right. you know, that that <laughs> can be an easy kind yeah, of good. thing. So, yeah. But this is a nice way to end, I think, to say the, the it, there's something at the end of this book that opens up something. And it's called the dead. And you think, oh, really? But the dead are with us through language, yes. which is really beautiful. I think the, I the way you yeah. end this and to say, actually, this in, this, that, that consciousness is not sort of your supervening ego controlling this, but letting go in some ways. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and, and the movement into sleep yeah. is a way to move into the collective sense right. of, of the loss of consciousness, which is also being alive at the same time, right? So, so uh, I, think, I, I think that idea that beauty exists beyond our possession of it and that 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 we're lucky to catch it right and that's what what dubliners really is it teaches us how to read and i think it teaches us at the end to pay attention especially to how free and direct discourse opens up to the other thank you john thank you that is a a really wonderful conversation so i want to thank you again John Waters, who is my colleague here at New York University, uh, for opening up the beauty of Dubliners. Thank you, Joyce. Really. Thank you. I enjoyed it very much. Collection, and then I hope to have you back on for Finnegan's Wake or Ulysses or one or, or well, we the portrait cent- of the artist. The centenary of Ulysses is in February. So we yeah. can we can do that in February. That that, that, w- that will be wonderful, and uh, it's also Joyce's birthday month, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's February second. So. Um, Thank you for being a guest on Think About It, and I hope to have you as a guest on the show again. Thank you, Willie.